Hello and welcome to Four for State, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from TRCR in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Euro Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Anthony Dockrell. In this edition, we return to the webinar series Black Stories Matter. The series is an important look at how the media has covered Aboriginal stories over the last 45 years and asks the important question, has our media failed to represent Aboriginal people fairly? And is our media silencing Aboriginal voices? Our talk in this edition is titled Aboriginal Self-Determination and Independent Media. The discussion was facilitated by UTS academic Dr Bouvar Narin. She speaks with Madeleine Heyman Raber, who is a freelance journalist and host of Read the Room podcast, and Rachel Hocking from NITV and co-host of The Point. Okay, let's start. Uh, welcome, everyone. Uh, welcome to the third seminar of the Black Stories Matter series uh, titled Aboriginal Self-Determination and Independent Media. My name is Bhuva Narayan. I am an academic in the School of Communication at the University of Technology, Sydney, um, also called UTS. I will facilitate the discussions today. First, on, on behalf of UTS and everyone present here, I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the Buru Barangal people of the Darug Nation, the Bidiagal people and the Gamaygal people upon whose ancestral lands our university now stands. We would also like to pay respect to the elders, both past and present, acknowledging them as the traditional custodians of knowledge for these lands. Independent Aboriginal media has a long history of telling Aboriginal stories that are rooted in communities and relevant to uh, the community needs. How have Aboriginal journalists battled to tell Aboriginal stories in mainstream media organizations? How do we challenge the self-proclaimed impartiality of media that imagines a mainly white audience? How do we confront the question of audience and of listening? These are the questions um, our panelists will focus on today. To begin, I'd like to introduce our first speaker. Madeline Heyman Raber is a Gomorrah woman and independent Indigenous affairs journalist. Her passion lies in social justice for First Nations Australians through storytelling. In 2019, Madeline worked with freelance journalist Sylvia Rowley to expose the criminal records given to stonal generation elders simply for being taken. It resulted in the records being expunged in the state of Victoria. For this work, they received a human rights award in the media category, as well as best news or current affairs story at the First Nations Media Awards. Madeline currently co-hosts the Read the Room podcast with Osman Faruqi. Welcome, Madeline. Can you talk a little bit about your recent experience as a journalist at NITV and more recently as a freelance journalist? Well, I think um, to start off with, though, I'd like to talk back to how I kind of started at NITV. Sure. Um, I think it's an, important to explain. So um, I actually started my career as a cadet journalist straight out of high school um, for a white organisation, which was Fairfax Media. Um, and I was there for uh, maybe three years, I think, did a cadetship and also worked in their digital team. Um, but I ended up like leaving that role because the, I wasn't doing anything of substance. I was just, you know, going like we'll do, we weren't te we were telling, you know, white stories all the time. Um, it was very commercial. I hated commercial media. 
Um, so I actually left and started working at Deadly Vibe magazine, which was run by um, a man named Gavin Jones. And he um, had that organization going for about 25 years. Um, and he had, he built it like into awards. He had um, the magazine, he had InVibe magazine, which went to prisoners in prison. Um, and he also did communications work kind of for the government. Um, when Tony Abbott came into uh, came to be prime minister, he ended up cutting the budget, as we know, to Indigenous affairs pretty significantly. And as a result, um, the he cut the funding to Deadly Vibe after 25 years. And um, Gavin, unfortunately, took his life. So after that was at the end of my employment. So I just thought I'm not going to do anything unless it's something that helps my mob anymore. Um, I can't go back to working in commercial news. Um, so I I didn't know where to go or what I could do except for NITV. There's, there was, you know, that we do have, um, we do have, you know, other like the crew mail and those kinds of print media. But um, in terms of TV and on screen, we don't have representation in a lot of our media organisations. Um, so that's why I decided to, you know, apply for a job at NITV and I was lucky enough to be there for nearly four years. Um, and I think that the, the reason, like black media is so important because there's there's issues like, I'm gonna use Anitanya Day's inquest as an example. Um, we were there every single day of that inquest for three weeks. And um, uh, I was personally as Victorian correspondent at the time. Um, and so we were able to like really tell the story from start to finish. Um, we know all of the details, like we were able to get even the smallest message out that the other networks would have missed. And being a black journalist, being able to do that, you're identifying the things that are actually issues. Um, I think that, so that was like, I loved doing that work and it's really intense work. And um, Rachel knows we've, I know there's been times where I've um, come out of a story and just like, you don't really know what else to do except for tell someone's story after hearing a really traumatic event. Um, so we lean on each other a lot too, um, in that sense. So that's like something that I think mainstream media would never understand because they don't put as much of themselves into a story as we do, because we live this stuff too. Like we go home to our families and we have the same things happening. Um, and yeah, so I, I think after a while, more of working, being able to do that kind of work in the community is really important, but working for a larger organization like SBS can be a bit of a struggle sometimes, especially when you have to, you know, get permissions to do a lot of things from a corporate level when um, you need to be doing stuff from a community level as well. So I guess in the end, that's kind of why I decided to leave um, and to become a freelancer because um, I'm also telling, you know, our stories from the outside um, for mainstream media now, rather than telling them for a black audience, which is what NITV essentially does. Um, so I guess um, being, NITV gave me the platform to be able to build myself up um, to be respected by mainstream media. And now that I can leave and um, tell stories through mainstream media for a bigger audience who, and I, that's like, you know, my aim as a journalist, I think journalism, for blackfellas is sort of a way of activism as well, because we're telling our stories in a way that only we can tell them. So yeah, and I also can work closer with the community now.
talked about your shift from um, NITV to becoming a freelance journalist. Uh, apart from the audience that you talked about, the different audience that you now have, uh, has it also um, sort of changed uh, the sort of the independence or the freedom that you have to report the things you want to report? Um, yeah, for sure. I think um, having being able to build such strong connections with community through my job, like not only just because I'm black, but <laughs> through mm-hmm. my job um, is good because a lot of the time I can help, you know, like families who are struggling with media requests and things like that, they can come to me now and I can give them advice on how to deal with them or even um, pitch something on their behalf, um, say, you know, get their story and pitch something to somewhere to be able to tell their story in the way that it should be told if they're worried about it being told in the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Um, we have another question. Uh, can you share your experience reporting on convictions for members of Stolen Generations and how you achieve change through this reporting? Yeah, so basically um, it started off, we had, um, sorry, I just went mind blank. Um, We had a journalist come to us with the story, basically. So she found it, um, Sylvia Rowley, sorry, um, who I jointly won the award with. So she found this in the first place and she brought it to us. Um, She's English. So she just wanted to make sure that black media told the story, basically. Um, But she worked on it with us because she's a journalist too, but she was working alongside Um, Uncle Larry Walsh, and she accidentally discovered this, that he had a criminal record. Um, So she came to us and we figured out in Victoria this happened, um, you know, to so many people. And the initial story that she did got picked up by a Greens member, Nina, um, can't remember her last name, sorry, um, Springle, and she put it before Parliament and they ended up um, talking about it. So we did a second story to keep the pressure on, I guess. Um, and we went and we talked to several other elders who had were in the same position. And it turns out um, that this didn't actually just happen in Victoria. It's happened in New South Wales and other states as well, because when um, the states were kind of established, they would borrow each other's law. Um, and these, these happened up until I think it was 1992. Um, and so it's affected, I guess, a lot of people's lives in the sense that um, we had one elder that I spoke to and she had been in Parramatta Girls Home and and she had a criminal record for being taken and put in, in the home, sorry, put in the home. And when she um, snuck out as a teenager or anything like that, when she had a police contact, they would record those as also criminal, like criminal records. Um, and then one, when she got caught, when she was like 16 or something for having a very small amount of marijuana with her, um, she actually went to prison, um, which because she had these previous previous convictions, including the uh, criminal record for being taken. Thank you so much. That was such a powerful uh, story and introduction. Thank you very much. I'm sure the audience has many questions for you, but we'll come back to them later. Um, now I'd like to introduce Rachel Hawking to our audience. Our second speaker is Rachel Hawking. Rachel is a Walpiri woman with roots in the Tanami Desert of the Northern Territory. She has been a reporter and presenter for NITV since 2015 and currently co-hosts its flagship uh, show, The Point. 
2019, Rachel joined the board for the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma in Asia Pacific, where she advocates for better trauma-informed reporting in indigenous communities. Rachel is an intersectional feminist who is passionate about Aboriginal women's rights, language revival, and climate justice. Uh, welcome, Rachel. Can you reflect on the recent SBS debates about diversity in the workplace and perhaps how that affects choices made in SBS reporting? Yeah, thank you, Bhuva. And um, it's nice to be on a panel again with my sis, Maddie. Uh, before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking from Camaragal country in Sydney's north. Uh, I pay my respects to elders past and present. And I also pay respects to all the mobs you're probably listening to this yarn from right across this country. And if there's anyone in the NT, shout out because I'm very homesick right now. My country is Walpri country, like Ruva said, in the town of my desert. Um, and one thing that I also wanted to acknowledge is while we're speaking from Gadigal land, Camaragal country, Eora Nation here in Sydney, we've been reflecting recently in my work on the fact that it's 250 years since Captain Cook sailed into Botany Bay. And I think it's really important to acknowledge the resistance that was put up to that event and the events that followed, the invasion that followed. So if anyone is listening in their traditional and my deepest respects to you today. Uh, a shout out quickly as well before I touch on the SBS stuff that's been happening lately. Um, I have to shout out to independent black media. I started out at the Curry Mail as a freelancer in Melbourne. I think a lot of us did. A lot of us started off as stringers for various black media or we started off in Aboriginal radio, which has been massive in this country since the 60s and 70s. Places like Karma in the central desert of Australia started by Frida Glynn. Um, you've got Torres Strait Islander Radio, we've got Noongar Radio, Galari Media up in Broome, got Crew Mail in Lismore, and um, even magazines that are now defunct like Tracker. I don't know if anyone listening ever read Tracker, but it was some of the best journalism in this country, edited by Amy Maguire and Chris Graham. And then following Tracker after it was uh, after it lost funding, we had Black Nations Rising, which was this incredible small magazine started by Callum Clayton Dixon and uh, Pakiri Ruska. It really gave a platform to Aboriginal activists in this country who would never get a platform anywhere else. It gave a platform to uh, recipes on how to cook with traditional ingredients. It did some really, really great reporting on stuff that was happening um, in land rights struggles right across the country. So to all black media, independent media, um, I stand on your shoulders. It's because of you that I'm able to have the job that I do and able to do what I do. And uh, NITV wouldn't exist without the hard work of all of our community media. So um, people probably have heard of what's happened at SBS in the past couple months. And um, I'll give a tiny bit of background just for anyone who hasn't. Basically, we had a reckoning with our own um, situation in the media landscape, which was very surprising to a lot of people because SBS is the multicultural broadcaster and NITV is the Indigenous broadcaster. But I think it's important to note from the get-go that just because we are multicultural and Indigenous doesn't mean that we're immune to all the other issues that happen in newsrooms right across this country. I don't think there is probably a newsroom, a mainstream newsroom in this country where racism doesn't exist. 
And so what we saw was a very brave, brave um, call out from a woman called Cody Bedford on Twitter, who started a Twitter thread about her experiences as a cadet uh, in around 2007-2008. And that created a domino effect right across the media. We saw people coming up with their own experiences, both at SBS and other media organisations, almost daily after that. And they were really, uh, they were were awful, but they weren't shocking because I think we cannot be surprised by the fact that racism happens in every single newsroom in this country when we look at what newsrooms are built on um, in this nation. And so... Following that, we had this call out by Cody Bedford. We also saw this photo, which is now infamous, which circulated Twitter, showing the all-white executive at SBS. Uh, I think a lot of people weren't aware that the heads of every single department at SBS at the time were white and that this uh, shouldn't happen at a place which is meant to represent 64 different languages, meant to represent our First Nations peoples right across the country. And so... Uh, I think it was a wake-up call that really should have happened a long time ago and a lot of us internally remember reflecting at the time that we weren't surprised by what we were reading and seeing but we had to think and question why it had taken this long to come out. Now we know that the reckoning we've seen at SBS has been an example of similar reckonings happening in industries right across the world because of what's been happening with Black Lives Matter. We've seen fashion industry come to terms with their racism. We've seen racist product names finally changed after being called out for decades. We're seeing um, reckoning happening in the NBA right now. You know, like this is where we're seeing so much happen as a result of the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement that it was definitely bound to hit the media in Australia. And following on from what we've heard at SBS, we've now got this public report which actually lays out exactly how white Australian media is. And so I think all of these things combined have made it a really interesting time to be a person of colour, to be a First Nations woman at NITV. And um, it's allowed us to actually have a platform to voice a lot of what our concerns are and then what we think needs to change. So we're finally seeing a change to the executive. Two brown women have been promoted, including Tanya Denning-Orman, NITV's channel manager. For the first time ever, we've got a representative from NITV in the SBS executive. And I think that's, that's a good thing. We're also seeing conversations about how complaints are handled internally and what we do when someone actually calls out racism in the workplace. Because the people who came up with these accusations uh, didn't stay silent on them at the time. They actually voiced them. And so what happened? What missed? Like who was not paying attention and who was not doing their job and looking after especially young reporters coming through the system? So looking at the complaints process and how this stuff is handled, looking at the HR department and how representative it is, there's a lot of work being done behind the scenes. And I think like any organisation, any industry that's having mass change at the moment, we're actually not going to know what the results are and how um, productive it is or what it's going to look like for the next generation for years to come. Because structural change and systemic racism, structural change that happens as a result of systemic racism, takes time. 
And that's the thing we have to be willing to do now is take time to put in these changes. We just hope that we're being listened to and um, we hope that the right steps are being taken. So that's just a bit of background on what's been happening at SBS. I know it's a, um, yeah, probably a bit of a mouthful for people who've already been following. Um, the fact is, is that what it's actually shone a light on um, for a lot of us is why we need diverse newsrooms and what, what a diverse newsroom offers um, the debate, the public debate that happens in this country. And I think there's a number of reasons. Maddie touched on, I think, the most important when she was speaking, and that's the trust that you build with a community. So when Maddie covered Tanya Day's inquest, the coronial inquest into Tanya Day's death in custody, she had access to the family because they trusted her. They were willing to give her information about what was going on because they knew and they trusted that it would be reported accurately and that they wouldn't be taken advantage of. And um, if anyone knows anything about media in Australia, you know that there's a big distrust in our communities for media. We've seen enough examples of how bad reporting can lead to bad policy. And if you don't know the history of the Northern Territory intervention and the media campaign that happened to lead to it, I do, uh, I think you should go and read about it. I won't spend my time talking about it here because I'll chew up all the minutes that I have left. But we know that bad reporting can lead to bad policy, which can adversely affect the lives of First Nations peoples in this country. I mean, beyond that, like having a diverse newsroom, it's, if, if you want to talk in monetary terms, like it's actually financially better for you because you're going to reach a bigger audience. You're going to reach more people in communities um, that feel like they're being represented on your screen. So that's just a fact. Um, you're going to manage to avoid some pretty serious mistakes in your reporting. Uh, at NITV, we obviously represent a whole bunch of different nations from across the country. So um, if SBS is doing a story, a First Nations story, then they can come to us and ask for advice about how do you pronounce this tribe name? How do you um, say this place name? If somebody has died, what is the cultural protocol here? What are the steps to make sure that we sensitively report on this community's plight? And um, if you do do that, if you do report sensitively, if you do get it right, you're going to be trusted by that community to come back and tell stories again. I think I've covered just about everything. I think one, one thing I'll mention just on the trust thing, um, because I think it's so important to make sure that people understand the difference between like being a black journalist, being a black woman, and actually reporting on indigenous affairs. The, the level of trust from community informs your reporting. It allows you to get that access. It allows you to tell stories accurately and sensitively. But beyond that, there's a level of accountability that is not taught in journalism schools. We are held to such a high standard and you will see it on black Twitter every single day. You know, we will get called out if we get shit wrong as we should. And that level of accountability allows us to go back to our work and make sure that we are putting out the best story possible for our community because we serve, we, we don't just serve the public, we're serving something deeper than that. And I think, um, I think a lot of, non-Indigenous journalists could learn from that. The importance of making sure that you do go back to community sometimes and you let them look at parts of your story or you ask them how they want to be referred to rather than just, you know, assuming. There's so much assumption that goes on in mainstream media. And I don't think, um, 
I don't think that we should fall back on these old tenets of journalism that impartiality is the only way to get a good story. We have to remember that the rules of journalism in this country were written by old white men. Style guides were written by old white men. Style guides up until recently didn't capitalise Indigenous and Aboriginal, let alone allowing for the nuance in spelling different tribe names. So there's a lot to unpack there, and I know I probably probably just word vomited it out, but that's sort of what I wanted to sum up. Thank you so much, Rachel. Um, you mentioned Cody's tweet before, and uh, going on from that, what is the tension between a person working in an organization and then them being on social media? And are there any sort of things they are able to do or are not able to do because they belong to an ITV? And um, what does what kind of questions does that raise about um, the freedom, uh, your freedom as a journalist on, let's say, social media, and then your reporting as a journalist for an organization? Uh, that's a really good question. I mean, pretty much every newsroom in this country would have a social media policy, mm. and that will tell you what you can and can't do, and um, within your contract and. We've seen a very high-profile example of that at SBS mm -hmm. a number of years ago. I think it was 2015 when I started, mm -hmm. actually, mm -hmm. um, with a man called Scott McIntyre who was um, ultimately sacked following a tweet he made on Anzac Day. Now, these are very real concerns that we have um, working in the media and how much of our opinion or how much of our truth that we're allowed to put out on social mm -hmm. media um, you have to find a, a balance, mm. I think. So working within um, a taxpayer-funded public broadcaster, we have to um, follow a charter. And at the end of the day, mm. a tweet that we put out there could adversely affect our colleagues and our ability to stay as independent as we can be. Um, you know, we know that independence is a, is a tightrope within public broadcasters. Um, and so I, I, find it, I find it tricky myself. I'm not a very vocal person on social media. I'll usually um, share yarns and I'll share the voices of the people I'm interviewing. I know that I would have more freedom to speak my opinions if I wasn't working for a public broadcaster. Thank you so much. Uh, so in the book that we referred to before, um, they found uh, that uh, Kuri Mail's reporting was much more willing to get into the intricacies of Aboriginal political debate and reform. Uh, for example, their coverage of the apology discussed reparations and compensation, a question largely left out of consideration in the mainstream media. Uh, how has your experience telling stories in directly Aboriginal controlled organization fed into your approach at NITV now? How can the media tell stories that accurately reflect Aboriginal experience and aspirations? That's a yeah. big question, I know. It's, it's a huge question. <laughs> I, mean, look, I wrote for the Korea Mail and, um, and, and you do have that level of freedom there. I will say that um, NITV didn't exist when um, uh, we had the apology and that if it had been around, we would have seen reporting on reparations and calls for compensation, which we report on regularly every anniversary. Um, yeah, I think because NITV is made up of uh, majority Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander journalists, we uh, have, like I said before, this accountability from our communities to report on the nuance, 
the depth that comes with our stories, uh, that comes with a land rights yarn, that comes with a climate justice story, that comes with deaths in custody. And um, it's on all of us to bring back the feedback we get from our communities to our editors and to relay what their concerns are, whether it's concerns with our reporting or concerns with how we should be reporting. And so what we have at NITV is robust debate about and robust discussion from journalists about how a story should be covered. And we're able to have that pretty openly because we're blackfellas and we're pretty honest with each other. You've been listening to an edited version of Black Stories Matter, a four-part series from the Indigenous Land and Justice Research Hub, Centre for Advancement of Indigenous Knowledge and the Faculty of Arts and Social Science at UTS. Dr. Bouvan Naren spoke with Madeline heyman Raber and Rachel Hocking. And thanks to Impact Studios for their production and sharing of the audio. And thank you for listening to Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of Tourisiar and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is 4 for State AU. My name is Anthony Dockle. Thanks for listening. <laughs>